welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're talking about chapter 16, sorry, part <laughs> two. I almost said chapter two. <laughs> that would be going really back close. a ways. Really close. <laughs> part two of chapter 16, taking charge. The last we left off was with Malta trying to manipulate her way into the Trell family fortune and getting their support for the Trader Council meeting. Right. But she was leaving with a little bit of disappointment of how not grown up <laughs> Serwin was. How and, Serwin stacked up to Brashen. Yeah. And thinking about how she's going to have to go talk to Rain now because of the disappointment. Yeah. And speaking of how Serwin stacks up to Brashen, we are now in Brashen's point of view. We start off by seeing Brashen already away from the house and drinking in a pub. Well, not even well, drinking. He ordered a beer. Yeah. He's sitting in a pub with a beer in front of him. <laughs> yep. And then gets up, leaving it untouched. With somebody immediately taking the cup that he left. <laughs> Outside the tavern, another Bingtown knight was unraveling. He was in the roughest part of Bingtown patronizing one of the waterfront dives that shared a street with warehouses, whorehouses, and flop houses. What's a flop house? I don't know, but I have also seen people on TikTok talking about how their roommate said that they had a flop house. So oh, it... a cheap rooming house or hotel, I okay. guess. Okay. Okay. I would guess like a hostel. Sure. Okay. There we go. Backpackers in. That's, the, uh, that's a benefit of having a Kindle. <laughs> or I guess a nook. Yeah, that's fair. I have the old paperback version. <laughs> he knew he should go back to the Spring Eve. Finney would be expecting him, but he had nothing to tell the man, and it suddenly occurred to him that he probably wouldn't go back at all. Ever. It wasn't likely Finney would come into Bingtown looking for him. Time to cut himself loose from that operation. Of course, that meant that the Sindin in his pocket was the last he had. He stopped where he stood and groped for it. When he found it, it was shorter than he remembered. Had he already used some of it? Perhaps. Without regret, he tucked the last bit into his lip. He resumed walking down the darkened street. Just over a year ago, he and Delthea had walked down a Bingtown street together at night. Forget it. It wasn't likely that it would ever happen again. She went strolling with Greg Tanira now. So, if he wasn't going back to the Spring Eve, where was he going? His feet had already known the answer to that. They were taking him out of town, away from the lights, and up the long, empty beach to where the abandoned paragon rested on the sands. A smile sneered over Brashen's face. Some things never changed. He's back in Bingtown, close to Penniless, and an abandoned ship was the closest thing he had to a friend. He and the ship had a lot in common. Both were outcasts. Back with Brashen, baby. Oh, yeah. Back with the self-deprecating <laughs> Brashen. You know, one thing I can't figure out is why I'm okay with Fitz when he's self-deprecating, but sometimes with Brashen, I'm like, get over it. <laughs> Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, my lad. Like, Because <laughs> we never see Brashen when he's happy. <laughs> we never see him like competent he's never not brash yeah <laughs> That's we see fair. him from other points of view when he's you know a competent sailor and stuff but in yeah. his head he's always like i'm the worst at everything and i'm an outcast <laughs> but low-key so is fitz so <laughs> yeah i guess but we have like 
magical reasons why he is. Brashen is just hits too close to home. I get, yeah, it's too real. It's like, <laughs> that's fair. I don't know. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Is I love Brashen, and I think I am still pretty harsh on Fitz whenever he gets too you pity are. party. So um, am I. <laughs> but. It's so funny because in this moment, I'm just kind of like, all right, Brashen, let's go. <laughs> but, you know, he is having a hard time. It's he doesn't. It's part of his flaw that right that he's not. He's not going to assume the best. And he is just taking Malta at her word for right. Althea being a pair with Greg now mm-hmm. that they're going steady. <laughs> But he's heading towards Paragon, and that means even in my in my first time reading through, I think I knew that, like, oh, Amber's there. Yeah. Yeah, he is expecting Paragon to be exactly the way he left it. He is going there to sulk alone, and that is not what he finds. <laughs> I just want to read, in line with our sulking and depressed Brashen. It would have been a lovely evening if he had felt good about anything. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Brashen is a very relatable character. (laughs) The Sindin had energized him, but purposely. All it had done was give him plenty of wakefulness in which to be confused. Malta, for instance, what game by Sa's beard had she been playing with him? He did not know whether to feel stalked, mocked, or flattered by her attention. He still did not know how to think of her, child or woman. Once her mother had returned, she had become a demure, demure young lady, save for the occasional sharp remark delivered so innocently that it seemed accidental. Despite Malta's apparent decorum, once her older relatives arrived, he had caught her eyes on him more than once that evening. He had seen her speculative gaze go from him to Althea, and her look had not been kind. It's really interesting to me that we get Brashen's point of view on Malta, and he doesn't necessarily suspect her as being mean or nefarious like she had a mean look and it seemed innocent even though it was mean yeah i i think he can kind of tell he's still confused about it because she's switching between it but like Mm. i'm reading between the lines and i think he can tell it's like she's really fake yeah there's something there that's (laughs) that's fair He tried to pretend that she was the reason Althea had not met his eyes. She had not wanted her young niece to guess what had passed between them. For three strides, he believed it. Then he admitted glumly to himself that she had not given him the least sign of warmth or interest. She had been courteous to him, just as Kefria had been courteous to him. No more than that, no less. As befitted a daughter of Efren Vestret, she had been gracious and welcoming to a guest, even when he brought bad tidings to the family. The only time she had failed in courtesy had been when Ronica had offered him a bedchamber. Kefria had urged him to accept it, citing that the lateness of the hour and how weary he looked. Althea, however, had kept silent. That had made his decision. He left. The two of them are so insufferable, I cannot yes, get over it. They're a perfect it's, match. The same as Sir Wynn and Malta are. It's so annoying. I hate that he... He hits the nail right on the head and is like, oh, maybe she was trying not to make a big deal in front of Malta. And then five seconds later, is like, no, it's because I'm worthless and she couldn't have possibly been liking me. She hates me. It's because she hates me. I'm an angsty teen boy. Why does it? First of all, why does it always have to be about you, Brashen? Second of all, 
Why would you be expecting anything when you're telling her that her live ship she cares so much about is in grave danger? Like, why isn't that part of his thought process? He just gave her horrible news. And he's like, why didn't she even show me a little bit of warmth? Buddy, please touch grass. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Then he goes into a paragraph here describing Althea's beauty. Not as Kefria and Malta were composed beauty, but just how she was. Which is a cute paragraph if it wasn't paired with all the rest of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's so close to being something. (laughs) She was no longer the boyish hand she'd been on the Reaper, nor even the captain's daughter from Vivacia. Her stay in Bingtown had been kind to her skin, hair and skin. Her attire was softer and a bit less pragmatic. She looked like a trader's daughter, hence unattainable. Oh, Brashen. It's so funny. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to, where we are harping on Brash and kind of harshly here, but it's not necessarily all his fault, right? Althea hasn't quite come to terms with the fact that she does like Brash and she hasn't even admitted that to herself. So of course. She's literally just taken ownership of a decision that they made together. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily his fault that he is struggling with this and really in the dark of what to think and really believing that Althea probably has no want to be around him because that is what she's told him. I mean, that's what yeah. she, how she's acting and what she said to him. And he's taking Definitely. that for face value, which we cannot expect him to read her mind just because we can. So, <laughs> it, But as readers, when they're both acting this way, they're both like, Oh, they don't like me. It's so frustrating to be like, please just talk, just like communicate a little bit. It's, <laughs> It would be so much better. But yeah, I think it makes sense that Brashen is struggling here and isn't sure about what's happening and is pretty confident that Althea doesn't like him because Althea doesn't even know for herself that she likes him. So he's trying, you know, he's trying. And in his head, a thousand what ifs were running. You know, what if he had mm-hmm. fortune, he was still a traitor's son, etc., etc. But so many what ifs. He had no more hope of winning her than being reinherited by his father. So throw it away with his other discarded futures. Walk on into the empty night. I do have a question for you. This mentioned here that he's not going to become rich as much as he is not going to win his father's favor back. Why couldn't he have won his father's favor back with his, all of his work on the vivacia like why wasn't that enough to prove that he had turned a new leaf to his father you know already cast it out i don't know already kind of gave the fortune over to his son i can't do you think that if he would have gone after the vivacia and like after kyle took over the vivacia and efren had died his father would have taken him back or given him another chance I think they would have had conversations, but it wouldn't have happened immediately where they like took him back, you know, Mm -hmm. he could have kept up a correspondence or something, but didn't happen. One of the what ifs. Yeah. Yeah. True. He spits out the bitterness of the Sindon stick and he caught a faint whiff of wood smoke from somewhere as he's approaching the Paragon. As he approached, he began to whistle loudly. He knew Paragon did not like to be surprised. As he drew closer, he called out jovially, Paragon, hasn't anyone made you into kindling yet? Who goes there? A cold voice from the shadows halted him in his tracks. Paragon? Brashen queried in confusion. 
No, I am Paragon, if I'm not mistaken, you're Brashen, the ship jestingly replied. He added in an aside, He's no danger to me, Amber. Set aside your staff. Brashen peered through the gloom, and a slender silhouette stood between him and the ship, tension in her stance. She moved, and he heard a clatter of hardwood on stone as she leaned her stick on a rock. Amber? The bead maker? She sat down on something, a bench or stacked stone. He ventured closer. Hello? Hello. Her voice was cautiously friendly. Brashen, I'd like you to meet my friend Amber. Amber, this is Brashen Trell. You know something of him. You cleaned up after him when you moved in. There was breathless excitement in Paragon's boyish voice. He was obviously enjoying this encounter. There was an element of adolescent brag in his voice as he teased Brashen. So we get Brashen being very conscientious of approaching Paragon, knowing he didn't like to be surprised, very familiar with Paragon already, yeah. and we see kind of like the grounds laid for their later relationship. Yeah, and I don't know, I you really do get that sense of familiarity that I don't think we've gotten before now. Really? We, we've, I don't think we've gotten to, gotten to see, from Brashen's point of view at least, Brashen approaching Paragon. We normally see his point of view when he's already inside Paragon. Oh, that's fair. Or has left. Yeah, or and, from Paragon's point of view. Yeah, and so knowing that the reason that Brashen is whistling and talking to him loudly is for care of his friend, I think that's really nice. I think that yeah. it's a good character trait that really sticks out to me that as horrible as Brashen thinks he is, he is being really courteous to his friend who cannot see him and making sure that he doesn't scare him. He's a bit unstable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I just really respected that. And I like that we get that point of view. I also think it's really interesting that there is that smell of smoke, but he doesn't see anything, which means he's probably being a lot louder than he thinks he is. And Amber heard him coming and put out the fire that she had going. Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah. But now we have... The revelation that Amber lives with Paragon now and Brashen can't just waltz in like he normally does. Yeah, and Paragon is very pleased at making them, at making an introduction between the two of them because he has two friends he can yeah, show off now. Two old friends. And um, he's bragging a little bit that she has decided to move in. Right. Like, oh, I suppose you're coming here to stay and sleep, but. She has the cabin, so you could find some place. Yeah. I think it's really funny that that he it is that boyish, that little kid, like, ooh, my friends are gonna fight over me. Like <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a cute side of Paragon, which is not necessarily the normal side that we get to see. Right. Yeah, and we have Paragon here asking Amber, saying, It's only the captain's quarters that she has taken over and stored a few things in my hold. Amber, you don't mind, do you? Brashen always comes to sleep here when he has no other place to stay and no more money. The pause was just a trifle longer than was polite. Brashen heard a touch of uneasiness in Amber's voice as she replied, You belong to yourself, Paragon. It's not up to me who you welcome aboard. I do, do I? Well, if I belong to myself, why are you so intent on buying me? Now he teased her, hooting like a boy at his own joke. Brashen found nothing humorous about it. What business had she with a live ship? No one can buy a live ship, Paragon, he corrected him gently. A live ship is a part of a trader's family. You could not sail without a family member aboard you. In a quieter voice, he added, 
isn't even good for you to be out here by yourself so much. He protests that he's not by himself anymore. Amber's here. And she comes out almost every night and every 10 days she takes a holiday and spends the whole afternoon with me. If she buys me, she won't sail me and kind of starts to lay out the fantasy of having him up on shore with like a garden and like a whole house. Yeah. And it really shows that Amber has kind of gotten through to Paragon, I think. At least in this moment, we know Paragon's a little touchy and, you know, tumultuous one moment to the next. But I think it shows that Paragon does want that. He does want the company. He does want. He's been enjoying having somebody there. Yeah. It's nice to have friends around. And I also found it really interesting that even though Brashen is no longer a traitor, he still has that traitor mindset of. Oh, yeah. It's live ships are for old trader families and old trader families only. And only if it's the family who bought them, it's not something that you can just sell willy nilly. Yeah. And he replies and almost rebukes Paragon saying, you don't, you belong to the Ludlux. They can't sell you and Amber can't buy you. Nor are you some great flower pot to be decorated with vines. Only a cruel person would tell you such things. He glared at the slender figure sitting silently in the shadows of course, Amber has to respond to that, so she flows to her feet, advancing on him, shoulders squared as if he were a man about to as if she were a man about to challenge him to a fight. Her voice was tight but even as she said, "If what you claim is true, then the cruelty originates with the Ludlux. They have left him here to brood and rot all these years. Now, when times are changing and it seems that all of Bingtown could be bought, they entertain offers from new traders. They would not make Paragon into a great flower pot. No, they'd chop him up into bits and sell him off as trinkets and curiosities. Rashin was struck dumb with horror. Instinctively, he reached out a hand to the ship's silvery hull in a calming gesture. That can't happen, he assured him in a husky voice. All of the traitors would rise up in arms before they'd let such a thing happen. Amber shook her head. You've been gone a long time from Bingtown, Brashen Trell. She turned and kicked the sand. Sparks flew up from the fading coals of a campfire. She stooped, and a moment later, tiny flames blossomed. So yeah, I think she did put them out. <laughs> put it out when Brashen was coming. Yeah. But yeah, we get the same confrontation that Amber had to relay to Althea. Yeah. That she has saying to Brashen here, just like, you've been gone a long time. Things are different. Yeah, and also I think this would be harder because... Rashin doesn't know Amber in a friendly way. He knows who Amber is clearly that she sells beads, but he doesn't really have any experience with her outside of that. Right. And so having Amber be here, he is thinking this is worst case scenario. She's being incredibly rude for no reason and really hurting Paragon. You can tell his concern is for Paragon in this. It's not that he, I don't even know that he necessarily cares about the rules of society more than he doesn't know this person. And he's worried Paragon is going to get scared or yeah. be upset at the Ludlux maybe selling him because it has always been a touchy subject. And so that comforting gesture to tell him that can't happen. None of the old traders would let that happen, but it can and it would and he just doesn't know it it's been right. too long like amber said 
And Amber sits down and says, hey, this began badly. Let's try again and drops the magic word, which is Althea's name. <laughs> True. <laughs> Saying, I had hoped you and Althea might work together to aid me in this. She has grudgingly agreed that my acquiring Paragon might be the best thing for him. If you join your voice to hers, perhaps we could all go to the Ludlux and make them see reason. He sat and tried to keep his voice conversational as he said, It is hard for me to believe Althea would ever support the sale of a live ship. I but pointed out the facts to her and she concurred. She rolled her eyes toward Paragon in the firelight. The small jerk of her head was a plain indication she didn't want to discuss details in front of the ship. Curiosity burned in Brashen, but he recognized the wisdom. Paragon was in a cheery mood tonight. There was no sense in awakening the quarrelsome side of him. For now, the best course was to humor them both and collect what information he could. There's another smart play on his end, but it also shows that Amber also has his his mood in mind. Right, yeah. Paragon isn't always happy and cheery, and so keeping him that way is kind of priority for everyone involved. It's the easiest, too, to make sure that the night goes smoothly, and poor Paragon is unawares. <laughs> yeah. So Amber tries to continue a normal conversation saying like, you know, how long have you been back in Bingtown? I know Paragon is happy to see you and will want to know. And Brashen just replies that we anchored up today and a silence falls over them. Amber, we're conducting this as if she were a Bingtown matron hosting a tea. And will you be staying long? She prodded him. I don't know. I came back to tell Althea I had seen Vivacia. Pirates have captured her. I don't know if Kyle and Woodrow are alive. I don't know if any of the crew is alive. The words spilled from him before he could consider the wisdom of sharing this information. There was true concern in Amber's voice as she asked, Althea knows this? How did she react? Of course, he then goes into explaining more, as everyone does to Beloved. They just seem to say more than they want to, especially in this series. Yeah, they like, it's like... Beloved has some weird gift, and maybe that is part of being a white, that people just He has tell. a lot of empathy, right? That's true, yeah. So that active good listener. listening plus yeah, being able good. to have sincere emotions. Yeah, true. That's fair. Even though they are like really hiding a lot, they still are able to be sincere, which right. I think is a pretty big talent. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think... They do have that gift of drawing out all of the extra information. <laughs> but yeah, Brashen describes everything that's happening. He like without thinking, he goes ahead yeah. and just spills his guts to Amber. At tomorrow there's a Bing Town Council trader meeting and that they're gonna seek aid in recovering the ship. And the the worst part he says is that Kenneth most likely doesn't want a ransom. He wants to keep the ship. And then Paragon interrupts his musing when he's saying he'll probably have to keep them as well to keep the ship sane. And Paragon says, pirates. Paragon's voice was almost a dreamy, dreamy, save the terror in it. I know about pirates. They kill and kill and kill on your decks. The blood soaks in deeper and deeper until your wood is so full of lives you cannot even find your own. Then they chop off your face and open your seacocks and you go under. The worst part is, they leave you to live. His voice broke into a boyish treble before it tremored into silence. Rashen's eyes met Amber's. Her eyes glittered with unspoken horror. 
Jean Brash and Rose as one, both reaching out toward the ship. His voice stopped them. Don't touch me! His voice was deep and hoarse, a man's frantic command. Be gone from me, you traitorous vermin. Feckless, dung-crawling rats. You have no souls. No creatures with a soul could endure doing what you did to me. He turned his face from side to side, blindly. His huge hands knotted into fists, swung back and forth before him defensively. Take your memories away from me. I do not want your lives. You are drowning me. You are trying to make me forget who I am, who I was. I will not. This last he roared out in defiance. Then his voice dropped low into a wild laugh, followed by a string of mocking obscenities. He's not talking to us, Amber assured Brashen in a low tone but he was not so sure. Yeah, so I think something, a little detail that I hadn't noticed until right now is that Paragon doesn't get this way until after Kenneth's name specifically is mentioned. Yeah, true. Kenneth didn't change his name, so, and it doesn't seem like it's a common name. So Paragon probably knows that this is Kenneth, like his Kenneth, and I kind of wonder if knowing that Kenneth stole a different live ship is part of what's making having this adverse reaction with him. Because Kenneth's whole thing was, you need to die so that I can go on living and leave this all behind me. And then he replaced him with a different, not crazy live ship. And there's all the background of the Ludlucks trying to sell him anyway. I think it would be really hard for Paragon to deal with it for that reason. And so I do have a lot of sympathy. I mean, even without that detail, I have a lot of sympathy for Paragon here. He's reliving horrible moments. And I think we're seeing the long-term effects of not only being Paragon being left alone, but the fact that he did soak up all the lives of whoever Blackbeard Killed on his decks. Igret. Igret. Sorry. Blackbeard. <laughs> you know, tomato, tomato. Fair. What do you think of the line? Take your memories away from me. I do not want your lives. You are drowning me. You are trying to make me forget who I am, who I was. I will not. Do you think he's addressing Amber and Brashen like Brashen maybe thinks he is? Or who do you think he's talking to or... I, I don't know. I, I highlighted it because it is important line, but we never really find out, I don't think. I think that this is about the pirate memories or the dead people on his decks memories. You think so? The pirates killed people on his decks, and we know from Vivacia specifically that anybody who dies on her deck becomes part of her. Their voice is there forever now, whoever yeah. they were is in her is with her forever and so i think poor paragon had way more of that and many more years of dealing with death on his deck and i a little bit wonder if it alludes to maybe the idea this is very tinfoil hatty but maybe igret knew that you could put memories in paragon and was trying to get paragon to not be reliant on kennet to sail maybe But I don't know. I think it's more of in thinking about pirates and Kennet, it brings to the surface the memory of the people who died on his ship with Igret. And so he's like freaking out about those memories. My theory is this is 
one of the dragon parts of him talking mm-hmm. about the original three lives that awakened him. This is take oh. your memories away from me. I do not want your lives. You are drowning me. You are trying to make me forget who I am, who I was. I will not. Ooh. And it could be, you know, in culmination or in addition with the deaths on board his deck that too but i think this is the dragon one of the dragons speaking out of him saying like i'm not gonna forget who i was yeah i kind of like that actually and that could definitely be the case but neither of them made a move to touch the ship they were obeying him here instead she takes brashen's arm turns him away from the ship and walks down the beach into the darkness the sounds of paragon's rabid curses and imprecations followed them When the light of the fire no longer touched their faces, she halted and turned to him. She still spoke in a hushed voice. His hearing is exceptionally keen. He's best left alone at times like these. If you try to talk to him back to rationality, he only gets worse. He has to come back on his own. I know. I know you know. I think you understand that he can't take much more of this. Every moment of every day, he dreads them coming for him. He cannot even sleep to escape it. Almost every day now, he retreats into his madness. I try to let nothing trouble him, but he is not stupid. He knows that his survival is threatened and that there is very little he can do to defend himself. You have to help us. Brashen says that there's nothing he can do, really. I don't know what the ship or Althea Vestra told you about me to make you think I have some kind of influence, but it's not true. Anything I support, proper Bingtowners will righteously oppose. I'm as much of an outcast as that ship. Your cause is more likely to succeed without me. Not that I can su- think it can succeed at all. Which, again, is just brash and being hard on himself, of course. Yeah, I think it's a little dramatic to say that just because he supports it, everybody will oppose it. Right. I don't think... I not to be mean, but I don't think he's important enough for that to be true. He people don't respect him, sure, but I don't think there are people coming into prominence though. People twenty eight, same age as him, that mm-hmm. remember that bad influence of Brashen, right? True. Yeah, that's fair. But I think yeah, he's assigning a little bit too much to himself. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody has that much malice towards him besides maybe his father and (laughs) even then so amber is like what should i just give it up now let him spiral and let the new traders come and haul away and chop him up what will we say to one another afterwards brashen that there was nothing we could do and we never believed it would really happen will that make us innocent innocent he was incensed at her suggestion he was somehow responsible for this mess. I've done nothing wrong. I intend nothing wrong. I am innocent. Half the evil in this world occurs while decent people stand by and do nothing wrong. It's not enough to refrain from evil, Trell. People have to attempt to do right, even if they believe they cannot succeed. Even when it's stupid to try, he asked with savage sarcasm. Especially then, she replied sweetly. That's how it's done, Trell. You break your heart against this stony world. You fling yourself at it on the side of good, and you do not ask the cost. That's how you do it. Do what? He demanded, truly angry now. Get myself killed for the sake of being a hero? Perhaps, she conceded, perhaps that. But it is definitely how you redeem yourself, how you become a hero. 
don't tell me you've never wanted to be the hero. I just want to say this is my favorite conversation and I guess partially my favorite quote in all of the series. Um, Just because the idea of it, I think, even outside the context of this book, really speaks to me. And I really like this idea that it doesn't matter if you're going to fail because you need to try anyway. And if you if you don't try and it does fail, you're not innocent then because you had an opportunity and like you have to continue to try. I feel like I've heard that quote in some superhero thing before. I feel like that's like a Superman thing or a (laughs) Spider-Man thing. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a a great concept, but this is the most overt form of manipulation that I think we see from Beloved. Interesting, okay. Amber here is really, really playing on Brashen's, like, this is how you redeem yourself. You have to be a hero. You have to do everything possible. Do what I want you to do, Brashen. And yes, we know it's for the good, right? Yeah. We know it's the right thing to do, but it is so overt that she's trying to manipulate him into doing something that at this point, it doesn't seem like he wants to do. That's so interesting that you say that it's so clearly overtly her manipulation because I did not read it that way at all. I don't think it's manipulation. I think it gives us a deeper aspect into Beloved's psyche and what they believe and what their like true belief of what the point is of being a hero. I don't think it has to be on purpose to be or malicious to still be manipulation. I think that's correct. I think this is like a what beloved believes truly this is what beloved beloved and what fits embodies right yeah but i still think it's a manipulation of who brashen is and what he's about interesting i would say that she doesn't know brashen well enough to know that that would hit at him so i don't see it as something that she's doing to purposely manipulate him like i don't think she has had enough. I sure she knows about Brashen from Althea's point of view, but I don't think that gives her enough and even maybe Paragon potentially, but I don't know if that gives her enough time with him in this short conversation to know that hitting him with the, don't you want to be a hero would get to him and is something that he does ultimately hope for. I mean, I think to be fair, it's pretty a, a pretty generic thing. People in general want to be heroes. They want to be the good guy. But I don't know. I just don't feel like they've spent enough time together for this to be that kind of a manipulation. I think this is, and maybe it is manipulation overall, because I think Amber does want Brashen to think the same way she is. I think she is trying to get her point across in a noble way. But I guess I just didn't see it as overtly manipulation like you said because it does feel like a very truthful statement on it's definitely amber's part yeah it's definitely truly what beloved believes right yeah i don't doubt that at all just with everything that amber keeps saying in this passage it's just like it felt the most in your face out of all the other interactions because we know that Beloved manipulates the people around them to do what they believe is correct. Yeah, that's true. That's 
the whole purpose of the white prophet, basically, yeah, yeah. to try to get the catalyst in the right direction so they make the choices that do what they want. Right. No, that's fair. I don't know. I do. I do think as much as I love this quote and I do really like the sentiment behind it, I do also want to say that I think there is a little bit of faultiness to it. Um, and I think especially when Amber says you break your heart against the stony world, you fling yourself at it on the side of good and you do not ask the cost. That's how you do it. I think is the faultiest part of this logic. And I think really explains and sets up really well. This is a really good breadcrumb to why the fool keeps leaving fits and why beloved is willing to endure decades of torture after next series to stay away from Fitz, to take on that pain, to keep Fitz out of it. Because I think beloved believes that that is, that's how you become a hero and it's their time to be a hero. Right. When they've been asking that of Fitz and, I don't know. I mean, Fitz asks the cost constantly and constantly says this cost is too high. I, I guess Fitz still willingly steps forward to pay it, but like, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just find it, I find that part so interesting. And I think it really gives a lot more context to this character later. It doesn't necessarily yeah. have just much more, more of this, but yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I, I really like it for that reason too. So I don't know. Maybe, People can let us know if they agree that this is overt manipulation or not. Mm-hmm. We'd like to know. Email us. Is Fitz happy at Gmail? So Brashen is sitting here listening to Amber thinking, what did this woman expect of him? There was nothing he could do to help the ship, nothing he could do to help anyone. All I've ever wanted was to do was live my own life, and I'm having damn little success of that. She laughed low, only because you keep standing back from it, and turning aside from it, and avoiding it. Trell, Trell, open your eyes. This horrible mess is your life. There is no sense in waiting for it to get better. Stop putting it off and live it. Everyone thinks that courage is about facing death without flinching, but almost anyone can do that. Almost anyone can hold their breath and not scream for as long as it takes to die. True courage is facing life without flinching. I don't mean the times when the path, the right path is hard, but glorious at the end. I'm talking about enduring the boredom and the messiness and the inconvenience of doing what is right. I think you can do that, Trell. Stop calling me that, he hissed. His surname was like salt in a wound. She suddenly gripped his wrist. No, you stop. Stop thinking you're the son your father disowned. You're not who he expected you to be. That doesn't mean you aren't somebody, nor are you perfect. Stop using every mistake you make as an excuse to fail completely. He jerked his wrist from her. Who are you to speak to me of these things? What are you to even know these things? With chagrin, he finally realized the only possible source of her knowledge. Althea had been talking about him. How much had she told Amber? He looked in her face and knew. Althea had told her everything. Everything. He turns swiftly and walks away. Brashen? Brashen! She hissed out the call. He kept walking. Where will you go, Trell? It was a hoarse cry in the darkness. Where will you go to get away from yourself? He didn't know. He couldn't answer. And this is what I mean. Like, it's obvious. Like, I think that puts down a lot of what 
you said like she doesn't know enough about him because mm. she's bringing up things that he feels from the events in his past, not just the events in his past. Yeah. So to me, as a reader, this just feels like me looking at this like, oh, obviously she wants him to go along with this because she thinks it's the correct thing to do. And here are the strings she's pulling to do that. Interesting. It just it just read to me like a Malta scene almost hmm. from a different point of view. Where it's okay. just like, and, and not like, I'm not comparing the two of them right. necessarily, but just how it was written of if this was Malta in Amber's place and we were in her head, I could see like, and now I will bring up this point and it'll make him react like this. It just felt like that, you know? Okay, sure. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. It's hard because... How does she know this much about Trell? Is it, is it that Althea really gave her that much detail about Brashen? Althea just couldn't shut up about the guy? Like, There's a lot of resources. Yes, Althea is probably one of them for a lot of things. Two, she has a spy network and can get a lot of information about things. Three, she's prophetic. <laughs> yeah. She has dreams. And four, she's touched his things that were in the cabin. She probably Touché, has a deeper yeah. insight to him than a lot of people. That's fair. I guess it doesn't mention if she's wearing gloves when she touches his wrist. True. Because if she's not, that also a little bit explains it, that she gets that deeper. That's why she knows everything there. Yeah. But I didn't even think of that, actually. <laughs> yeah, because then that's when she really digs deep Yeah. after the touch. So maybe she isn't wearing gloves. He doesn't mention seeing her in gloves at all. So I'm going to assume that means she's not right. wearing gloves. But yeah, I don't know. It's. And again, it's not it's not a condemnation on no. her or her actions or anything like that. It just it reads like that to me. OK, yeah, no. And that's super fair and valid. I don't know. I guess it definitely could be that. I'm not saying that it couldn't. There's yeah. no possible way. I just haven't considered that and didn't read it that mm -hmm. way yeah and you just thought it was more of an expression of what amber truly believes yeah i thought of it and more it kind of struck way. home yeah and i think i think too there is that that aspect of amber being a white that makes it feel as though there's a deeper reason for the saying i feel like sometimes i overlook the way things are said because magic, I guess, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, magical being, like maybe this is part of the prophecy speaking through her or whatever. So I guess, I don't know, maybe it is manipulation though, or trying to be manipulation, but like you said, not necessarily in a malicious way, just to get the outcome that Amber needs. And to be fair, Brashen's a blunt guy. Maybe he just needs the blunt tool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, she's not saying anything wrong. And no. I think she makes a really good point and she does the same to Althea, right? She calls out the thing that they are hiding behind and says, you're better than that. And I yeah. think that is really hard to hear. I think for oh, anyone, it's hard to hear that like, hey, your coping skill where you're trying to pretend as though things are different than they actually are isn't very good. And I'm seeing behind that. Like, I, Don't I'm, wait around for your life to get better. Yeah. And live that's, it and make it better. <laughs> and I think that is a very valid thing to say. Brashen does 
use every mistake as an excuse. Like yeah. I don't have to even try because I've already failed and I don't need to try again tomorrow. Next time I'll save my money. Yeah. Like maybe next time. And then it's like, oops, well I bought a little bit of Cinda and better spend everything I have and not have any money again. It's just that like, flimsy excuse of well I can't help it that's just who I am my dad knows that I'm a piece of trash and it's like okay well you just are different than what he wanted you to be that doesn't mean that you're not a person who can be capable and I think that's what Efren Vestret was trying to get across to him too in a more subtle way that like you're still a person of value you don't have to be your bad days or your vices right and I think right now is probably not the best time for him to have heard that. I think if he had come in, well, I guess in what scenario would he have gone to Paragon and been in the right set of mind? <laughs> like, let's be real. But like, I don't know if he hadn't have been on his like come down from the Sindin and just been rejected by Althea. Maybe it would have been taken a little bit better, but I don't know. So we switch over to Malta. Yep. Once again, and we left off the last part of this chapter talking about how she was comparing Brashen to Serwin and Serwin was lacking a little bit. And then at the end, she brings up Rain a bit, yeah. saying like, maybe I will use the dream box because remember, she put that off as well. Rain gave her instructions, you know, put the dust in the box however many days after I leave. And she refused to do that. She did not do any of that because... She didn't want to be controlled. Yeah, she thought it was more gratifying to make him wait. And he assumed she would do it because he assumed that he already had her and she was going to put that misconception right. Yep. So. But now with those bad comparisons in mind, she gets the dream box down and has a shiver of excitement and anticipation because she is looking forward to this. She puts the powder in. She sneezes violently. (laughs) And then it says the back of her throat felt odd, numb and yet warm. Is the powder that goes in the dream box silver? I feel like it has to be, right? It has to be because that's what elderling magic is reliant upon. Yeah. But I'm wondering if the dust is like ground up um, cocoon. I doubt it. I doubt it because dream boxes seem more common. They're rare, but they mm-hmm. seem more common than expected. Okay. If it was cocoon, because dragons eat that, and all of Elderlings' culture was based around worshiping and making sure they got everything that they needed. Right. But I'm, I don't think, I'm not necessarily saying that the powder the Elderlings would have used was made of dragon cocoon the the rainwelders figured it out and like they they saw silvery dust and then saw that the cocoons are silvery and we're like maybe it could be let's try it (laughs) but that seems i mean maybe but it seems very frivolous but then like the alternative is there's just silver dust like powdered stone or something like that Okay. Like the silver the stone. memory stone. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. They could just have bags of it that are labeled, you know, in like a store for 
that they found in the city. I guess. I don't know. It also weird because we know next Rainwild trilogy, the so not the next trilogy, but the trilogy after. The fact that the elderlings were working with silver was a very secretive things even kept from the dragons because the dragons are very possessive about the silver and the silver according to the dragons belongs to them so i think the fact that this potentially is silver is low-key crazy because they're not even supposed to use it you know what i mean so we have no guarantee that this is silver but i would probably guess it would it's gotta be be made a little bit yeah. yeah I don't know. Anyway, Malta has put the dust in the box, closed the lid, and it's waiting. That part, okay. How do these stupid dream boxes work? Because how would Rain know to go to sleep right now to get the dream to meet with Malta? Like, I get that she wanted control over the situation and so didn't do it when he told her to, but it makes more sense that she would have had to do it when he told her to, because then he would know that it was happening. Otherwise, like, how does this work? How how does it work anyway? But how does it work that she just puts it in a box and then he also is dreaming at just the right time? A book? The plot? <laughs> yeah, I know, but I don't like it. It doesn't have rules. It for sure does not have tangible rules i mean it kind of makes sense right like there is a connection it's kind of forcing a skill link as we can think of it between two people and when you're dreaming or like visiting dreams like nettle does and it feels like even though she's going to bed late and yes serendipitously he's going to bed late as well Uh if he was already asleep she would just kind of come knocking oh, okay. <laughs> on his door, you sure, know, be sure. like, hey, I'm here. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. Just like they establish the link and then all of a sudden they're like next to the proximity is right yeah. there and they can see each other. So do you think. Do you think in order for this to happen, Rain also has a dream box with dust that he's using every night just in case or. I don't think so. There, there must be something of like. The person has to do something with the dust, right? Yeah, to create you need, like some sort of connection. You need to give the Rainwilder something of yours for right. them to create a dream box for you to use, which yeah. is the whole thing with her giving her cup. So maybe he put something of his into this dust. It's like her cup and something of his and then silver. I don't know. Yeah. But whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But then is it the box doing anything or is it the dust? That's the real question. Both. <laughs> Both is good. <laughs> so she's now blowing out the candle, closing her eyes, and waiting. An anticipation was betraying her. She could not fall asleep. And she's failing to fall asleep. And when that fails, she focused her thoughts on Rain instead. She found him much more attractive after Serwin's disappointing performance. When Serwin had taken her in his arms, he had seemed thin compared to Rain's broad chest during his one stolen embrace. She considered it. Certainly Rain would not have missed a chance to seal a kiss. Her heart beat faster at the thought. Rain raised a storm of conflicting emotions in her. His gifts and attention made her feel important. His wealth was attractive, especially after a whole year of penury. 
Sometimes she did not mind his veiled face and gloved hands. They made him mysterious. She could look at him and imagine a handsome young man hidden beneath them. When he led her with such grace through intricate dance steps, she felt both his strength and his agility in his light touch upon her hand and back. Only occasionally did she wonder if his veil hid a warty visage with misshapen features. When they were apart, her doubts assailed her. Even worse was the sympathy of her friends. One and all, they were certain he must be a monster. And half the time she thought they were just jealous. <laughs> the other half, she believed him. Yeah, maybe they just wanted him to be ugly out of envy for her good fortune. And she doesn't really know what she believes or anything, so her, mind's turn, her mind turns to rain and we get an actual honest insight into how she feels. Yeah. She is attracted to his personality, to his wealth, and yes. to what he can provide. He seems interesting to her. Yeah. And yet at the same time, that mysterious part of him that she is attracted to lets her imagination run wild of how horrid he is. Yeah, and I think it really shows that if her friends were excited and like, ooh, this is so cool, you're so lucky, I think she would more readily like him and yeah. more openly be willing to say, you know, like, oh, this might be actually a good match. But the public opinion, especially, I think, is really harming her ability to overlook the fact that she doesn't know if he's warty or not. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So she's tossing and turning here and fears that she wasted the powder because yes. she can't fall asleep. And she wishes that her father came home to make everything right. Yeah. And then we are in the point of view of Rain. Yes. And he is preoccupied with somebody else, another woman in his life that is stubborn and craving power, and that would be a dragon. Yes. Currently unnamed. <laughs> I want to come out. Why won't you help me? I can't. Please, understand that I can't and stop pleading with me. The imprisoned dragon was contemptuous. You won't. You would, but you won't. All it would take is sunlight. Open the shutters and let in the sunlight. I would do the rest. I have told you, the chamber you are in is buried. Once I am sure there were great windows and shutters to open and close them, but the whole structure is buried now. Earth covers you, and trees grow in it. You are beneath a whole forested hillside. If you were truly my friend, as you claim to be, you'd dig me out and free me. Please, I need to be free, not just for my own sake, but for the sake of all my kind. And so we learn that Rain is sleeping right now. Yeah, and he is dreaming of the dragon. Yeah, he uh, felt he was not truly asleep, nor was he dreaming, yet he was not awake either. Dragon kind of pulled him to a sideways point. Yes. It was almost a nightly torment now, he says. When he slept, the dragon looked into him, at him, and through him with great copper eyes the size of cartwheels. Her eyes spun, the colors whirling all about the great elliptical pupils. He could not look away from them, nor could he break free of the dream and wake up. She was imprisoned in her wizardwood cocoon, and he was imprisoned in her. And so he has these torments, we learn. Of her pleading with him and him just trying to argue back like, I don't have the power that you think I do. Yeah. And interestingly, this is the same kind of conversation, or at least this conversation was echoed the last time we saw Rain in the Rain Wilds with his mom. 
he specifically was asking his mom to dig down to the thing to open up the skylight. Yeah. Yeah, Get the chamber opened so that they could expose the log to sunlight. And her mother or his mother had said, no, that's too much money, too much labor. And also we don't know what would happen. Yeah. We don't know what would happen. (laughs) And it's kind of a waste of wizard wood to allow it to hatch. Like, how what's going to be the reaction when the dragon realizes that we have killed all the other ones also that thing could just be completely dead yeah that could just be memories assaulting you you do not know and so it's really interesting to see this then echoed here where rain Rain is taking yeah taking the stance of we can't and Tintaglia, who we know the name of now, <laughs> the dragon. <Right. laughs> the dragon right now in the books, but yes. as rereaders, we know it's Tintaglia. Is saying, you're killing us all for all time. Let me out. Let me out. And he's screaming, I can't. They're going through all of this sort of thing of like, you know, you can drag me out. Even if it collapsed, it might kill me, but it would be better than waiting here. Rain, help me, help me, help me. And he's just giving all these reasons, like, I can't, nobody would trust me, I can't do it alone, and no one's going to help me do it. The structure is cracked and weakened. If the door was moved, I think the whole dome would give way. And she's like, take the chance. I don't care. Do something with me. It's better than being trapped here for ages. And ultimately, he says, I am your friend. I am. I long to free you, but I cannot do it alone. I must win others to my cause first. Then we will find a way. Be patient. I pray you be patient. And she says, starvation and madness both do not know patience. Let me out. And he screams, I can't awake. I do want to mention something that was skimmed over is that Tintaglia offers to give Rain secrets of the city to yes. help open the door because he says that he does not know how to use the mechanics in that room. And she says, I can give you the memories. All you have to do is come touch me. And he has to say, no, you're going to drown me in the memories. And then I can't help either of us. So I thought that was a really interesting detail that Tintaglia has the ability to give memories to people yeah and also that she would even know how it works to begin with i mean that's Um, just their communication right that's basically just dragon communication is sharing their past lives their memories true true thoughts with one another so rain startles awake you can't make her understand anything really and he sits up in bed breathing like a wrestler the sweaty bedding twisted about him, binding him like a shroud. And he's finally awake. He's trying to calm down from that nightmare, from the vision, the dragon vision. And he looks out over Treog. He talks about how there are some lights down by the excavation site because excavation never really stops in this city. That it always goes on. It's just when people can work on it or whether yeah. or not they can work on it. Because when you're down in the city, it, you don't know whether it's day or night anyways. You're deep underground. Exactly. He once more considered telling his mother of these nightmares, but he knew how she would react. 
she would order the last wizardwood log to be split. The immense soft body would ins inside would be tumbled out onto the cold stone floor, and the precious wizardwood log would be reduced to planks and timbers for a ship. It was the only substance the Rainwilders had ever discovered that seemed impervious to the acid water of the river. Even the trees and bushes that lined the river survived only so long as their bark was intact. I do want to talk for a second. This is a little aside. How big, once again, how big are these logs? Because massive, massive, One massive. is enough to build out the hull and a figurehead on a live ship. And live ships don't seem small. And I've been around some ships. <laughs> we, you know, live in a harbor city now. And I've seen some big ships. And I'm like... Which even the smallest of a ship that I've seen is ginormous. So, so you have to remember that not every single plank is wizard wood either. No, or they used to do that. <laughs> yeah. but it's very costly. But it is still the hull of the ship, yeah. and a figurehead, and the and parts of the deck near the figurehead. Yep. So that's a lot of even just that is a lot of wood. Oh yeah. The serpents that the cocoons are made out of are mm. longer than ships. And we're in like the diminished section of serpents <laughs> that have been alive for a long time. And maybe that means some of them have grown bigger, but I, I think they're still going to be longer than ships. So when they make cocoons out of everything, these things I'm imagining as big as sequoias, which you can drive a car through. Yeah, but I'm, I guess, yeah, that's fair. But I'm thinking... At the end, doesn't Malta move this by herself into the sunlight? No, I don't think so. She like pushes it through the door out into the sunlight for it entirely to hatch. Uh, I don't remember that sequence, but maybe. Somehow, Taglia gets out yeah. with Malta alone. I think it's a quake and like she opens up the, the visor or something or the sunlight from above. I don't know. We'll, we'll read it in the next book. Yeah. Or maybe the end of this book. I don't remember. I don't think she moves it, though. Well, if they, she does, then it's a plot hole. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it, I suppose. We'll figure it out. Maybe somebody can uh, reach out and let us know. But he's thinking about how this is the last log, and the Cooper's family owns this one. The last and greatest log. If he had his way, he would find a way to expose it to sunlight and see what emerged from it. One rotting old tapestry seemed to show such a hatching. A flabby white creature reared its head from a soggy wreckage of wizard wood. It gripped fragments in its jaws as if devouring the remnants of its prison. Its eyes were savage, and almost human creatures witnessing it seemed to be stricken with awe or fear. Sometimes when he looked at it, he knew his idea was madness. Why take a chance on freeing such a frightful being? But it was the last one of its kind. The last real dragon. He laid down and tried to find some thought that would put him back to sleep, but he also kind of fears sleep at this point, because he thinks that the dragon's just going to seize him and drag him down once more. And then his thoughts turned to Malta a bit. Right. Sometimes when he thought of her, delight and anticipation filled him. She was so lovely, so spirited, and so fresh. In her willfulness, he saw strength unrealized. He knew what her family thought of her. It was not without reason. 
She was stubborn and selfish and not a little spoiled. She was the kind of woman who would fiercely defend herself. Whatever she desired, she would pursue single-mindedly. If he could win her loyalty to himself, then she would be perfect. Like his mother, she would protect and guide her children, holding fast to wealth and power for them long after Rain himself was in the grave. Others would say his wife was ruthless and amoral in defense of her family, but they would say it with envy. If he could win her over to him, that was the rub. You'd been certain, as you mentioned before, that he had won her when he left Bingtown, but he had not uh, had contact from the dream box. She had not used it since. Right. And even Malta could sense that he thought he had gotten her. So she's very astute in her realization. But it's also interesting to me that he talks about how she's going to have kids. They're going to have kids together and she's going to fight for them when he's gone. And it just makes me think, did he even talk to her at all? Because Malta doesn't want kids right away. And I think they have that conversation later on too, but that feels like a pretty big conversation that somebody who has been there for a (laughs) month courting her would have at least brought up once and listened to her opinion on. And I think it really goes to show that. Would she have said that though? She's playing the perfect, like I'll reel you in. Well, I think she would have at least said, well, we can wait on that. You know what I mean? Mm, That's fair. Like I don't, there are nice ways to say, I don't want kids right now. I don't know, but it is really interesting. It really, I think, plays to the point of as much as I think Malta is a manipulator and she's not my favorite character, I still think that Rain is also just as selfish and manipulative. He sees what he wants to see out of Malta. And while he does, he does see a lot of her real personality. Like he's not as tricked as these other people about who she really is on the inside, but he likes that about her, which is impressive. And I think it is a good sign that like they're a pretty good match. However, I think it's a little skeevy that that's what he likes about her. And also weird that he doesn't know her enough after the amount of time they've talked together and how much he says that he likes her to know more about her preferences. And that like makes me feel bad for Malta. He's rolling over in his sleep, falling asleep slowly, and he hears, Rain, Rain, you have to help me. I can't, he groans. And that's an echo from the previous conversation at the beginning of this section. But the darkness parts and Malta came towards him. She was ethereally beautiful. Her white nightdress blew in an otherworldly wind. Her dark hair flowed with the night and her eyes were full of its mystery. She walked alone in the perfect blackness. He knew what that meant. She had come seeking him. She had set no stage, composed no fantasy. She had laid down to dream, thinking only of him. Rain, she called again. Where are you? I need you. He composed himself and then entered the dream. I'm here. And he enters veiled, and she says, you're not veiled last time. He's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I do want to quick stop to point out this does imply that the way that the dream magic works is you have to think of the person and think of the scene that you're trying to set. But that means he didn't tell her that's how it worked. He just told her when to use it. And that kind of makes me mad because like 
of course she's coming to him dressed the way she is in bed and with nothing else if she doesn't know how it works. And the fact that he does know that's how it works and didn't give her that heads up is so not fair and does not leave an even playing field. And I just don't <laughs> like it. And ugh, it's already a skeevy relationship. I'm not a fan. But especially with this whole, oh, look at how much she really loves me. She's laying herself bare and not even setting a scene. It's like, yeah, bro, she doesn't know that she can do that. If you would have told her, maybe she would have. He has that revelation here, too, saying... Yeah. He reminded himself of how young she was. He would not take advantage of her. Perhaps she did not completely understand the power of the dream box. Last time, you brought many ideas to our dream, as did I. We let them mingle and lived what followed. Tonight, we bring only ourselves and whatever else we wish. So maybe he thought that she knew because, like, the last time they had the dream box, she did bring ideas of what was happening, and she had, like, the whole scene played out where he saved her. I guess. I don't know. I don't know either. But we know, we yeah. know that, and we've talked about that he attributes to her a little bit more maturity and thoughtfulness than she actually possesses That's at this true. point. So maybe he just like took it for granted. I guess. I don't know. It's just like, I don't love that. The detail of, I'm just going to assume she knows and not tell her right. anything. Ugh. So he sets a scene of one of his favorite tapestries and it comes to life around them. This is a nice little dream world kind of thing. Beautiful things are popping up. It's a beautiful like forest view and a fox with a rabbit in his jaws peered at them from a bramble. A couple too tall to be completely human. He with copper hair, she with gold embraced in the foreground. His body pressed hers against the black bowl of a tree. Rain had visualized them as frozen in time. But the woman suddenly took a sighing breath and turned her head to accept the man's kiss more deeply. He smiled to himself. She learned to play so quickly, this Malta. So obviously Malta's still thinking about like, why didn't Serpent just kiss me then? <laughs> yeah. And then he immediately says after, or did she know she, what she'd even done? She broke her eyes away from the couple. I don't think she knows. I think it's no. pretty clear she doesn't know. She doesn't know how it works. It's just the naturalness of whatever playing through this whole thing. I especially don't love that earlier he said, I know she's young, so I won't take advantage. Like, what do you think this is, bud? Like, <laughs> ah, if you know she's so young, why don't you wait till she's older? I get that you die young, but come on. Anyway they're here we're not gonna go into it we all know oh, we're not gonna go into it. <laughs> <laughs> we all know they have a gross age gap it's fine anyway she repeats i need your help yes they have gone on the dream is kind of unfolding things are coming to life more and he realizes that it wasn't just her saying that wasn't just a shadow of his previous dream with tentaglia yeah. it was actually her needing help <laughs> what is wrong the uh, the ardent couple is drawing attention because they're getting a little hot and heavy over there. So Malta's still slightly distracted and she's snatching her eyes away, saying everything that could go wrong is going wrong and relays the whole thing that pirates have taken the ship. If my father still lives, we hope to ransom him, but we have little enough money as it is. If our creditors discover we have lost our live ship, they will not lend us more. More likely, they will demand swifter repayment of what we already owe. Her eyes wandered unwillingly back to the man and the woman. Their love play was becoming more intimate. It seemed to distract and agitate her. 
Congratulating himself on his self-control, Rain took her unresisting hand. He willed another path through the forest. They walked slowly along it as he led her away from the amorous duo. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want me to do? Kiss me, the voice was commanding. The words were not Malta's. They had come upon another couple beneath another tree. The young man gripped the woman by her shoulders masterfully. He looked down into her proud, upturned face. She gave him a look of icy disdain, but he lowered his mouth to hers. Against his will, Rain's blood stirred. The woman struggled briefly, then clasped the back of the man's head to hold his mouth against hers. Rain looked away, disturbed by the force of it. He tugged Malta's hand, and they walked on. So we get little more glimpses of Malta's play in her mind come to real real life here in this dream. Yeah, like this is what she had expected. This is from Sirwin. This is what she had wanted, what she thinks of as being a romantic. She also wants the roguish man to sweep her off her feet. Yeah, must be a Vestra thing. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? Malta asked. He considered. He did not think this was the sort of thing usually discussed in shared dreams. My guy, I beg of you, please. <laughs> in what world would she know that? Like, I, I cannot I mean, get that's over. That's kind of implicit. I, I, I guess th- I took this line as a little bit more of like a jokey thing. Oh, okay. Of like, well, that's not usually discussed here, but let me think about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think it's. I think it just like drives home this point of like. Why would Malta know anything about Rainwild culture? In what world are even regular old trader women taught on their courting customs? You know what I mean? Kefria didn't even know what a dream box was. So why would Grain assume that Malta will know the courting rules of He's a rich boy. I guess he knows. Why wouldn't everybody else know? Ugh, very Malta of him. (laughs) so he thinks and says your mother should write to my mother they are the ones who should discuss this not us he wondered what his mother's reaction would be in coming to him for help malta seemed to have forgotten that the cooper's family now held the note on the live ship not only were they one of the creditors that malta now feared but that pirated ship had secured that debt it was a tangled situation and basically he goes over that the magic of a live ship was carefully guarded, secret. It was like the Rainwild's thing. Mm-hmm. And it's made so the pur- the purchaser never lets it go outside of their hands. That's why there's a huge debt. Why That's why there's increased ties to the family. So they trade with them always. And there's that whole kind of connection. So that secret doesn't get leaked out. And also... It's super, super expensive, and he persuaded his mother to give it as a bridal gift to the Vestrid family, and he expected his own children would eventually inherit it. The complete loss of the ship would be a substantial financial blow to anyone. He was sure his mother would be spurred to action, but he was not sure what action. He had never been interested in the financial business of the family. He was the explorer and scholar. He mined out the discoveries that they turned into coin. What they did with that coin had not concerned him. Now he wondered if he had any say in it. So he's he's really wondering, like, would they actually help the Vestrits get the ship or would they get the ship themselves and be like, it's ours. You're careless with it. He doesn't know and he wants to keep Malta. So he wants to help the family. <laughs> yeah, I think most telling, though, is that the only reason he 
stated for wanting to buy the note of the ship to pay off as a bridal dowry and the reason that convinced his mother to do it is that they would eventually have their children would get the ship, which like is weird that he assumed that number one, because there's already the male of the family sailing with her father, with Malta's father. So presumably that would be who gets the ship. I don't know how he intended to make sure that he convinced Kyle, which he hasn't even met Kyle, but also it is very Kyle esque of him to be like, well, of course that's my ship. Like I know I have no tie to it by blood or right in any sense of the word, but it's definitely my ship and my kids get it. Like who cares what the Vestrits want? It's my ship now. <laughs> but, well, Malta is a Haven. Yeah. So that would be his daughter, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. No, but like, I don't know. I just think it's, very Kyle of him to assume that he gets claim now because he's bought the ship's ticket. <laughs> ugh. You've been doing that quite a bit. A little ugh. <laughs> it's almost as though I really don't like this couple. <laughs> it's hard because I don't love Rain as a character. I don't love Malta as a character, but what I lo- love least is how weird the coupling it. Like yeah. if he had just been a little younger, but then there wouldn't have been, been as much urgency for him to need to get married right now and right. have babies. So maybe they could have made Malta a little older. But then also, again, this wouldn't have happened. I get it. It's fantasy. They're not real. But I don't like them. <laughs> Malta was outraged instantly after he suggested that the mothers write each other. Rain, we are talking about my father. I cannot wait for my mother to talk to your mother. If he is to be rescued, we must act now. He felt emasculated. That's on him. Malta, I have no power to help you directly. I am a younger son with two older siblings. He never said it was on her. No, I'm not saying, but I'm just letting it be known. That's (laughs) not on her. (laughs) She stamped her foot angrily. I don't believe you. If you care for me at all, you will help me. She sounded just like the dragon, he thought in sudden dismay. It was a dangerous thought to have in a dream box setting. The earth suddenly trembled under their feet. A second, harder shudder followed the first. Malta clutched at a tree to keep from falling. What was that? she demanded. An earthquake, he replied calmly. They were common within Treog. The suspended city swayed with the living trees that supported it and took little harm. The quakes, however, often did great damage to the excavation work. He wondered if this were a real earthquake pushing its way into the dream or an imagined one. I know what a quake is, Malta sounded annoyed with him. The whole cursed shore is prey to them. I meant that sound. Sound? He asked uneasily. Like scrabbling and scratching. Don't you hear it? He heard it all the time. Waking and sleeping, the sound of the dragon's claws working feebly against its tomb haunted him. You can hear it too? He was astounded. He had learned to ignore that he had always been told was his imagination. Before he could reply, everything began to change. So things started to shift visually in that dream, and this was no longer Rain's memory of a tapestry. Someone else was adding to the dream box vision, and he did not think it was Malta. And thunderclouds began to boil up along the horizon. He was certain of it then. And eventually, he's like, okay, Malta, we should part now. Tell your mother and everything, and then all of a sudden... 
He's interrupted. Lightning cracks. Malta cowers low and points wordlessly up at the sky. Erratic winds lash her hair. And a dragon hovered above the trees. Interestingly, this dragon is iridescent in color and has a silver silver body and wings with copper eyes. I specifically point that out because isn't Tintaglia red? I think she's blue. Oh. Oh, I'm thinking of um, Tamara's dragon. That one's red, right? Centara. I think she's blue as well. Hebe is red. What? <laughs> I could be wrong, but I thought Centara... Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure, <laughs> figure it out. out there. I'm pretty sure Tintaglia is blue, at least. But uh, I think she's iridescent with many different colors dancing because they don't know mm. what kind of dragon or what color they are yeah. before they emerge. Interesting. Yeah, her eyes were copper. I have the power, she declared. Her voice split the sky. The branch of a nearby tree cracked and fell heavily to the earth. Free me and I will aid you. I promise you this. Her wings lifted her to the sky where she turned a slow, dazzling loop. Her long serpentine tail lashed the sky behind her. Rain suddenly began to fall. and Malta fled, shivering to the shelter of Rain's arms and cloak. He put his arm around her. Even in the shadow of the hovering dragon, he was aware of the warmth of her skin through the damp cloth of her nightdress. From beneath his cloak, Malta squinted up at the beast. Who are you? she cried loudly. What do you want? Who am I? Do I look so foolish as to gift you with my name? No, you will not come to control me that way. As to what I want? A trade. My freedom in exchange for the ship you mention, and if your father is still aboard it, his life. What say you? An easy trade, is it not? A life for a life? Malta looked to Rain. Is she real? Can she help us? Rain stares up and says, She's real, but she can't help us. Malta, of course, is wondering, like, why not? She's meant she can fly. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Malta's easy. ready to go. Malta does not care about Grasping any... any hope. Yeah, and she doesn't really care about the negative connotations of letting a dragon free to the world. But I do want to talk a little bit here about this entering of the dragon. Yeah. I think it's really telling that Malta isn't necessarily afraid of the dragon. Like she is shocked when she first sees right. the dragon, but Malta is still talking back. You know what I mean? I guess there is the added comfort of this being a dream and so potentially not even real but i do think her ability to stand up in the face of a dragon is really impressive and i think it's also why tintaglia eventually accepts malta as being one of her own if that makes sense i think that she's another queen yes a kindred (laughs) spirit you know (laughs) they like calls to like but i also hate this attitude from rain that we kind of just saw in Brashen a little less so but this whole like I can't do anything I'm gonna twiddle my thumbs instead like I'm not even gonna try mm. there's nothing I can do and I don't know why you want me to try that's why this chapter is called taking charge that's true all the women getting in there taking charge of the situation but it's yeah it's kind of frustrating because he's just like 
I'm not even going to try. Why would I? Who cares? It's not, that's not my business. What goes on with the money portion of things? Like that's my parents' (laughs) business. And I don't even think I have the power anyway. Well, he says that he's never traditionally been involved in the financial side and he wonders if he has any say. So I think he, he would try, but like he doesn't you're right in that he doesn't think he has any power so he's like just your mother right my mother <laughs> yeah like let the adults handle this like buddy you are an adult <laughs> i don't know it's my vision is clouded because i don't like him very much i'm sure but i do find it really interesting how in this moment it really is malta taking charge and it is malta kind of talking down to him. She's like treating him almost like he's the child in this situation by saying, she's you know, the one who throws a tantrum, but yes. I mean, she is throwing a tantrum. <laughs> you're right. But stamping her foot in anger. <laughs> no, we do it now. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. But I do think the fact that she is willing to call him out and be like, yeah, you're yeah. wrong. Like, what do you mean? We Give don't have me time to do that. Yeah. Like, can you please think about this for one second outside of, whatever it is that you have on your mind. I need this to happen. My dad is going to die. Which is why she latches on to the dragon's offer. Yeah. And kind of butts head with rain saying like, why can't she help us? You said, why not? And he's like, what is she going to do? Destroy the ship and kill the pirates. Yeah, maybe that would help if that's what you want. Maybe she would help if she were truly free, but she's not. And we can't free her. And this isn't how she actually is. And Rain realizes how close he had come to a very dangerous topic. And he says, she's trapped far beneath the earth where no one can free her. He takes her arm and hurries her away into a little sturdy cottage that he wills into existence. And she turns back to him, raindrops still glistening on her face. Firelight danced in her eyes. How is she trapped? Malta demanded. What would we have to do to free her? He decided to tell her enough to be honest. A long time ago, something happened. We're not sure what. Somehow, an entire city was buried under a heavy layer of earth. It was so long ago that trees have grown in the earth above it. The dragon is in a chamber deep within the buried city. There is no way to free her. He put all the finality he could muster into his words. Malta looked stubbornly unconvinced. He shook his head at her. This is not the dream I imagined we would share. Couldn't she be dug out? How could she be alive, buried so deeply. Malta cocked her head at him and narrowed her eyes. How do you even know she is there? Rain, there is something you are not telling me. He straightened his back and stood his ground. Malta, there are many things I cannot tell you. I would not ask you to betray the secrets of the Bingtown traitors. You must trust me that I have told you all I can, I honorably can. She stared at him for a time, then lowers her eyes. After a moment, she says, Please do not think ill of me. I did not realize what I was asking of you. Her voice grew throaty as she added, I look forward to a time when there will be no secrets between us. So now she's going back to her original plan. Yep. Of like, okay, fine. I'm not going to get there at that point. Now let's try a different angle. Yeah. Interestingly, I think that she's been the most real she has been in front of Rain up to this point. Yes. (laughs) And then as soon as she knows that without a doubt he is hiding something from her she's like all right we'll put on a play again i i think she started with a little bit of a play but i really do think there is something between them yeah that, like yeah. there is some sort of affection i think she does like him and does trust him in a way 
And again, I think she wants to be swept off her feet. She wants somebody to save her from her dreary life and all the bad things happening to her. And she wanted that to be Rain. And then Rain also isn't living up to that expectation. Like Sirwin let her down, but it wasn't a huge surprise. It was just right. disappointing. Yeah. She was consistently comparing Sirwin to Rain and how Rain mm-hmm. would have done better. Yeah. And now here Rain is, and he is just giving lame excuses as to why he can't help her. So that would also be disappointing. And so I'm sure if this was from her point of view, we would get a lot more of that. What have I done wrong? What did I say wrong? Why isn't this working? Oh, so maybe it's him. Reverting back to her playlist now, her little yeah. script. Yeah. She tried being honest. She tried being open and it didn't work. So now oh. she's got to manipulate him. She wasn't trying. I think she was just angry and yeah, like grasping and hopeful, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Fair enough. So there's a blast of wind that buffets the cottage. Rain suspects it's the dragon and they hear, free me. Her long wild call slid down the sky to them. Free me. At the sound of the dragon's voice, Malta's eyes grew wide. A second wave of wind hit the cottage, rattling the shutters, and she was suddenly in his arms. He held her close and felt her trembling. The top of her head came only to his chin. When she turned her face up to his, he fell into the bottomless gaze of her eyes. It's only a dream, he assured her. Nothing here can hurt you. Nothing here is quite real. It seems very real, she whispered. Her breath was warm on his face. Does it? he asked in wonder. It does, she assured him. Cautiously, he lowered his mouth to hers. She did not avoid his kiss. They have a somewhat awkward kiss yeah his arms came around her arms came around him and held him with an awkward inexperience how many kisses have you given rain (laughs) but there was a sweetness of the kiss clung to him as the power of the dream box faded and he drifted into ordinary sleep (laughs) so there's little little kiss there and she gets kind of what she wants yeah like finally a man swept me off my feet and after a little bit more direct hints i got kissed (laughs) yeah so he did fulfill that role for her and i don't know i just i don't like how now twice we have direct references to rain acknowledging how young she is like I wish Robin Hobb wouldn't have done that so we could at least pretend collectively that like this is a normal age gap even for this universe. But instead we have this creepy predator man. It's like like, it's a year and maybe two years out of a normal age gap. Yeah, it's so close. It's so close. But like it's just I don't know. And I don't like that. It keeps getting referenced even by Hobb because it's like. Are we supposed to be okay with this or not? Because <laughs> it's like, I get that this is a fantasy book with not real people and I can suspend my disbelief and my 21st century ideals, but it keeps getting brought to our direct attention that Rain is fully aware she is a child and young and innocent and naive and not experienced. And I hate it. Like it just makes it worse. It just doesn't, no part of it makes it better. So what would you consider getting into this discussion then if we're going to stay out of it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know? <laughs> just Fair kidding. Because like that's that is true. Because yeah. she is kind of drawing direct attention to it in small choice word choices. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I think yeah. It just because it's so in your face, I feel like I have to comment on oh, yeah. it. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just I'm I know just you're making fun because <laughs> I said I want to get into it, and then here I am <laughs> fifty minutes later getting into it. <laughs> starting and stopping. 
So they're fading from this, uh, the dream box dream into ordinary sleep. So it has a limited amount of time that you can use it for. Mm -hmm. And he calls out, or no, she calls out, excuse me, come to me, come to me at the full moon. I can't, he cried out, desperate that his words reach her. Malta, I can't. He awakened, saying the words into his pillow. Had she heard him? Closed his eyes and tried to will himself back into sleep and the shared dream. Malta, I cannot come to you. I can't. Is that what you say to all females? Somewhere a voice laughed in wicked amusement. Claws twitched feebly against iron-hard wizard wood. Don't fret, Rain. You cannot go to her. But I shall. A little ominous promise from the trapped dragon. Yep, yep, yep. He can't go to her at a full moon, but Tintaglia can visit her dreams. Yeah, they have opened up that skill link. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a long chapter and a lot to go over and a lot to talk about and an introduction to an important character that keeps reappear- reappearing. Yeah. No, it is. It is a big. I think a big amount of things happening and a lot of changes and people kind of trying to both confront destiny and sidestep destiny. Right. And I don't know. I just, I like it a lot. I don't know. It's a good chapter. I think overall lots happening. Well, thanks so much everyone for tuning in. If you have thoughts about the first part of the chapter with Brashin and Amber and Althea and a little bit of Malta or the second half with more Malta and Rain and Tintaglia, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com. You can go to our website at isfitshappy.com and find links to all of our social medias or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, threads, and YouTube as well. Leave comments, leave ratings, you know, let us know how we're doing. We appreciate all the feedback. We love hearing from you guys. Talk to you next week. 